Our guest today became, in a small way, an accessory in one of the greatest political scandals in American history. St. John Hunt was a sleeping teenager one night back in 1972 when his father woke him to tell him he needed his help. A dutiful son, he rose to the opportunity and found himself cleaning fingerprints off electronic equipment, then accompanying his dad as this collection of incriminating evidence got tossed into a canal. That equipment had been used in bugging operations at the Watergate Apartments in Washington, D.C., and St. John's dad, E. Howard Hunt, had been directing the burglary operations. These events led eventually to Richard Nixon's downfall in the only presidential resignation in U.S. history. The public would later learn from the, quote, smoking gun, unquote, tape, that Nixon feared what might come of the revelation that ex-CIA agent Howard Hunt was involved in White House-related activity. So it was, he ordered the fateful cover-up that destroyed his presidency. For St. John Hunt, these events were infinitely more personal and utterly disastrous. As part of the cover-up, St. John's mother, Dorothy Hunt, got involved in the moving of funds used to buy the silence of some and cooperation of others. While on a mission to deliver said funds, she died in a plane crash. With his mother dead and father slated for prison, St. John witnessed the disintegration of his family. The life he led afterwards was rootless and involved drug use and drug dealing. But our guest today got clean and was able to reestablish some rapport with his father. While on that quest for rehabilitation, he learned some unnerving facts about his parents. Father E. Howard Hunt had been involved in some of the CIA's most outrageous clandestine operations. These included the overthrow of the Guatemalan government and the failed invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. Mother Dorothy had been involved in intelligence work, too, and her death might not have been accidental. St. John Hunt has written a book about his mother titled Dorothy. This backstory to Watergate was one we were keen to discuss with him, but we simply could not pass up the chance to discuss his previous book, too, titled Bond of Secrecy. Late in his dad's life, St. John reached out to his father to speak about the other great scandal with which the name E. Howard Hunt has been associated, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. What father told son stunned the public. Yes, he said, there had been a conspiracy to kill JFK, and he had had a role in it. We believe we owe St. John Hunt for his efforts to get what information he did. Sadly, it is incomplete, but other family members in the CIA were none too happy on having any of this revealed, so we must be grateful for what we do have. In writing about American political scandals that were also Hunt family tragedies, St. John has written two important books. We're keen to discuss them and happy to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, St. John Hunt. Doug, thank you very much. That was a, that was a, a wonderful introduction, uh, uh, very factual. You put a lot of stuff on the table there, so um, I'm, I'm happy to get started. Let's do it. Back up a little bit, talk about your parents. They were both unusually capable people who seemed to crave incite, uh, excitement, uh, and, and your family certainly found itself in exotic places when you were a child. You were all over the world. Yes. Born in Washington, D.C. in 54, but uh, moved almost immediately to uh, Japan, Tokyo, uh, where my father was a station uh, chief. And, um, you know, two and a half years later, three years later, we moved to Montevideo, Uruguay. And then uh, four years after that, we moved to uh, Mexico City for a short time and then to the States and then uh, to uh, Madrid, Spain. So uh, I had a very, um, uh, you know, you could call it a a spoiled uh, upbringing, but at the same time, I I didn't really see my parents very much and uh, never spoke the language of the country that we lived in, so I consequently had no friends. (laughs) So I was probably like 15. And I guess as you were growing up in these various foreign stations, you sort of thought your parents must, must work for the State Department. Well, as a matter of fact, that's, uh, that's what I uh, grew up um, 
uh, being told. And, uh, of course, there was the uh, falsified State Department uh, credentials on my father's wall in his, <laughs> in his office. He always had a, an office in, in whatever house we lived in. And, he, you know, it was, uh, you know, your nice certificates of appreciation for, you know, 10 years of uh, great service or what have you. And, and they were all, of course, uh, CIA forged documents. Well, your dad wrote something like 85 books, a lot of it's spy fiction, movies got made from those novels, and he also, I guess, helped craft the books from some other CIA people, including director Alan Dulles. So his skill as, as a writer was obviously an important asset to his career. Yeah, it was. Um, for a while after um, uh, he, was, uh, he uh, left the OSS, uh, and just before he fully joined the CIA, uh, he was uh, seriously considering a uh, career uh, primarily as an author. Uh, he had written uh, three or four uh, novels by then, the first one being um, uh, e- uh, Limit of Darkness, or it was East of Farewell, actually, and he won a Guggenheim Fellowship for that, which was about $40,000. So he was feeling pretty good about that, but he craved action. He was an action junkie, and um, and so consequently he, uh, uh, when offered a position in CIA from OSS, uh, he dove into it and rose very quickly through its ranks, uh, becoming uh, eventually rising to the position of uh, head of uh, uh, the Latin Division for the World. And um, and then he was also instrumental in the uh, in 1965. They developed a special division for uh, media control. He was very proud of his service to CIA, and of course he was involved in some of our um, most disastrous uh, CIA exploits. Um, and. Uh, you know, and of course, uh, his later confession to me about his prior knowledge of the JFK assassination, which was not uh, um, directly, um, you know, mandated by the CIA, but it was a general feeling in many of the, all of the intelligence branches, as well as the military-industrial complex that Kennedy was a danger to this country and had to go. All the way from the beginning, through OSS, CIA, and then um, in 1970, uh, when he falsely retired from uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, he uh, joined Nixon's uh, fledgling White House team of, uh, of uh, spies and investigators, nicknamed the Plumbers. For um, one of their early jobs was to uh, uh, find the leaks uh, that were being leaked to the New York Times of the Pentagon Papers. Which Rand Corporation study that 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 Ellsberg leaked, and of course that caused a national firestorm. And of course, uh, one of his uh, crimes uh, for the White House under Richard Nixon was uh, to break into. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office uh, and uh, find any dirt, uh, any sort of, uh, you know, uh, proof of perversion or uh, drug use uh, uh, that Daniel Ellsberg may be involved in, and then uh, they were going to leak that to the media. And uh, the idea was if we could uh, show that Daniel Ellsberg was, um, you know, a bad person, then, uh, you know, we could control him, in other words, a blackmail scam, basically. Right. So, By the way, we uh, had a chance to speak to Mr. Ellsberg, and when he was recounting that burglary, he said, he scoffed and said, well, they weren't going to find anything. <laughs> just want to throw that out there. Yeah. They, and they didn't find anything. No, they didn't. You know, he, he also was sent up to Chappaquiddick um, to uh, see if there was any more dirt on the uh, Ted Kennedy affair uh, up there when uh, he drove that car off the Chappaquiddick Bridge and Mary Kopechny died in the back seat. Uh, yeah, yeah, and also we can talk about Arthur Bremer later too. But 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 let's 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 go back and talk about something a point you made in your book, which is fascinating. Your father is is known to history for the whole Watergate um, event, and yes, as you mentioned, he quote retired unquote. It wasn't the first of his retirements, apparently. Um, 
And although he's famous for doing the bidding of Nixon's chain of command, things you're talking about going up to Chappaquiddick, you also point out in the book he was still kind of a double agent because, in essence, he was still working for the agency and was, in in some ways, their man in the White House. CIA Director uh, Richard Helms uh, felt a strong need to to put somebody uh, very close to uh, uh, what was going on in the White House, which he he had... um, he had heard, heard through certain channels uh, Nixon developing a special investigation team, which I don't think had ever been done before. You know, Nixon's attitude was uh, he had asked the FBI for help, and uh, and they had re- refused um, to um, to tap uh, uh, you know phones to uh, create a uh, sort of a a, um, a hit list of leftist actors and journalists. And uh, uh, Nixon and Helms had been at odds over Nixon's demands to get all the information. Uh, regarding the Bay of Pigs, to see what the CIA knew. And so he just got fed up and decided, I'm going to create my own investigation team. And uh, the person he asked for was Howard Hunt. He had met my father in, um, in the uh, mid to late 50s uh, in um, Montevideo, Uruguay, when uh, Vice President Nixon was doing a goodwill tour um, under the Eisenhower administration. And they had dinner together. And we should note, too, that he probably crossed paths with Nixon late in, in the Eisenhower administration when the whole Bay of Pigs things did get started, and Nixon was one of the guys uh, giving the, the okay to it, and your dad was one of the people putting it together. That's very correct, and that uh, leads us to the uh, uh, part of the uh, information uh, uh, proof that my uh, dad kept uh, linking Nixon to this, uh, this relationship he had uh, with the CIA and creating a secret team of assassins, CIA-trained assassins, to, uh, to start um, uh, assassinating uh, Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, Che Guevara, and, and, and many other dignitaries and uh, foreign diplomats that, that weren't uh, going to step in line with the CIA's desires. Uh, and that was called Operation 40. And as you just said, President Nixon gave the green light on that. Uh, he was the liaison man between Operation 40 and the White House. And... That was a very little-known fact at that time, and for many years later it had been kept top secret. But my dad had the goods on Nixon for that and the Watergate and all the other crimes he, he did for him in the, in the two years that he worked uh, at the White House. I'd like to back up a minute to talk about the burglary itself. Five men got arrested on what was probably their second or third break-in at the, at the Democratic headquarters. Your dad was leading the support team along with uh, Gordon Liddy, and one of the burglars had an address book on him, or in his hotel room, I forget which, with your dad's name in it next to a notation that said W House or White House. So it's at this point on the night of the arrest that you sort of get involved in playing your role. But um, but as you pointed out in your book, this, this burglary at the Watergate itself is somewhat mysterious to this day, and you cite the excellent book Secret Agenda by Jim Haugen as giving some some explanation to it. But it's still hard to put together what, what, what your dad and Liddy were doing. So there still are some areas of mystery uh, in that, but um, uh, one thing my father told me, and and also that I've come to understand uh, through uh, through my own research, is that um, uh, many of the team members that were part of the break-in team, um, such as uh, Jim McCord uh, and uh, Gordon Liddy and my father, and also uh, some of the Cubans too, uh, they had different responsibilities and different reasons for for going into the Watergate. In other words, it was a, like an onion skin. Yeah. Uh, there was layers of, of, of things. And Liddy was actually in control of the operation. And when it was discovered that the tape uh, was removed, and then they put it back and it was removed a second time, the tape that kept the lock open, uh, my right. father you know, plead, pleaded with Gordon Liddy to let's, uh, let's um, can the operation, let's get out of here and, 
and Liddy um, overruled my father, and they went in, and of course the rest is history. But um, I think they were looking for a Castro document that Castro had compiled detailing the many assassination attempts against him over the years, starting in the late 50s and continuing right up through Watergate and, and, and as we know now, beyond. Uh, and, all, you know, linking Richard Nixon and uh, the other American politicians with this uh, horrible, um, you know, uh, Operation 40 and executive action team that uh, were assassins. And um, Nixon felt that, uh, that this uh, document had been given to the Democrats to use against Nixon. I don't know where Nixon got this idea from, but then he also had my father break into the Chilean embassy in D.C. because he, the rumor had it that that document could be there. So from Nixon's point of view, he wanted that document. Uh, they also were there uh, to, um, to see if there was any uh, funds being transferred uh, uh, or laundered from Cuba, from Castro, to supply the Democrats with you know, with campaign funds. Which seems uh, the, pretty you know. unlikely in retrospect, but okay. Right. And then there's the rumors of John Dean's uh, wife's call girl operation, the black book of names and numbers. And I don't really know much about that, but I've heard that that was a possibility as well. But at that point, the, D, the DNC was basically a shell. It was an organization. It was the organization that moved its primary communication systems to Miami, Florida, where the, where the uh, Democrat convention was going to be held. And the offices at the DNC were basically just a few telephone operators. Even though Larry O'Brien still had an office there, he wasn't there much. And so there's a lot of mystery about, well, why, why was it so important to, you know, to get in there and repair a phone bug that hadn't been producing any credible information up until the time it uh, stopped working anyway? Right. So now we bring the CIA in, and, and we start seeing that uh, three of the, water, the Cuban Watergates were one was an active CIA agent, and two were contract agents. My father was still reporting directly back to Dick Helms about everything going on. And uh, between Nixon and Helms, there was a lot of bad blood. Yeah. And uh, although Nixon may not may, he may not have, uh, you know, ordered the specific break-in at the DNC, Helms knew that Nixon would cover it up. And it was the cover-up that got him in trouble on his road to impeachment, not specifically the break-in, because they could never prove that he ordered it. They could prove that he knew about it a day or two later, but it was the cover-up that got Nixon, and Helms knew that. To this day, St. John, I don't believe anyone has ever been able to establish that Nixon ordered that ordered that uh, that burglary, and I guess we just have to leave it at that. Right. You know, I do want to add, I remember your father testifying at, at the Watergate hearings, and I saw on television you and your sister sitting there in the audience, and uh, something that surprised me from your book was that a lawyer told you not to reveal when they questioned you that you knew some of those burglars from having actually visited your house. That's, of course, against the law for lawyers to do, and it, in essence, made you guilty of perjury. Right, that's correct. That lawyer was uh, William, William Bittman, uh, and uh, he, he got a lot of money out of my father, but he didn't really give him such good advice, and it turns out that he actually um, you know, engaged himself in criminal activities, as you just mentioned. But uh, the children, myself, and... Um, Lisa and Kevin, my two sisters, of course, my mother, we were all uh, interrogated behind closed-door sessions, uh, and uh, I was shown various photographs of, of Cubans and, uh, and other folks uh, that I, I denied ever seeing at our home or never knowing or hearing their names around the house or anything like that. I, I didn't really know what else I should do. We're speaking with author St. John Hunt. Has Frank Sturgis been to your house? One of the burglars uh, was also later associated with your dad in other other events. Was was was? Were you familiar with Sturgis? 
Well, we were familiar with him from um, from from earlier times. Okay. Um, I don't recall that Frank ever came out to Potomac, where we live near Washington D.C. But uh, certainly uh, uh, Manuel Artime, uh, who played a, a role in Watergate and many other CIA illegalities that is yet to be undisclosed, uh, because he was my father's best friend and was supposed to be the president of Cuba once the invasion had been a success and Castro had been killed, then Artime was going to be. Uh, the next president, and uh, he was RFK's golden boy, and my father picked him and hand-constructed uh, the new government for Cuba. But, uh, you know, Gordon Liddy was out there quite a bit. Um, I saw um, uh, McCord came out there, um, and, 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 and some of the Cubans, the Gonzalez, uh, Barker. Yeah. And these guys, you know, to me at the time, I didn't really know who they were, but they were very nice family men, very, you know, generous and... Uh, you know, a lot of laughs and uh, good times, and then they would retreat down to my father's study, and everything would go quiet. Later, it turns out they're all, you know, on somebody's payroll, CIA or the mob, <laughs> and uh, and some of them are killers. You know, they're they're capable of killing and, and had done so for Castro, as a matter of fact. Well, your dad and and Liddy got arrested eventually, and a lot of legal fees were going to be needed, and Nixon was determined, as we mentioned, to keep things as quiet as possible. Being your dad was involved. He succeeded at first. In November of 72, he got reelected in something of a landslide. Uh, your mother got involved in moving those funds needed to ensure tranquility, and she died in a plane crash that December. You note in the book she must have imagined she was in danger because she took out a quarter-million-dollar policy before she flew to Chicago. Um, and although it, it does seem incredible to think that, you know, someone may have been murdered by taking out a commercial jet, there are a lot of strange things happen in that crash and its aftermath that does make you wonder. Uh, you've written about it in the book. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, that's one of the first things people say to me that aren't really uh, knowledgeable about uh, standard CIA procedure for uh, assassination. One of them, of course, is to, if you want uh, one person taken out, uh, it may be the, the, the least conspicuous way to take uh, an entire apartment building out or a yeah. ship or a plane, yeah. uh, because then the focus of the investigation is not on the one person. It's on, you know, 40 or 50 people. And it's just collateral damage to the CIA. Uh, any ends justify the means. So um, she was on her way to Chicago. She was carrying a briefcase with the evidence, uh, some of it that my father had uh, stashed at his White House safe um, and managed to get out before they drilled it and, and took it from him. And uh, also $2 million in canceled uh, uh, checks and money orders uh, from a Mexican bank directly linking the financing of these crimes that Nixon committed uh, to, the, um, to the funds that he had acquired to, for his re-election. The committee to re-elect the president were in control of that, and they had a slush fund, but it was a paper trail leading directly back to Nixon. And he also had the, uh, the information, the evidence that Nixon had uh, green-lighted the murder of Castro and, 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 uh, and other uh, uh, you know, uh, leftist-leaning foreign dignitaries. And so this is why Nixon, when you hear him on the tapes, his greatest concern was to keep Howard Hunt quiet. we got to pay Howard. He goes, what will it take? And John Dean says, um, maybe a million dollars. And Nixon pauses and he goes, a million dollars? I can get that. I know where we can get that. I can get that. Dean and Haldeman and Ehrlichman are just incredulous. They're like, what the hell does this guy Hunt have on the president of the United States? Well, they didn't know, but, uh, you know, it was some serious things that definitely would have had Nixon impeached. Uh, you know, directly, I would think. And my mother did come back in uh, Europe. She was there for the summer in 72. And um, when she came back, she... Uh, the sad, the tragic thing about this is that she had intended 
uh, and was preparing to leave my father because um, in 1970, when uh, he told her he was retiring from CIA, that was a lie. And he also told her that, um, that he was not going to work uh, in and around intelligence uh, capability anymore, and that he was going to concentrate on his writing and give the family at least a few years of a normal type of life. And that was a lie. And they argued about this. I had never heard them argue before, but my room being directly underneath their bedroom, I heard the, the loud voices and the anger in their voices. And it was about that uh, she'd had it. He was also unfaithful to her, and she found out about that. So she had had it up, up to her eyeballs, and she left with this with $10,000, which the cover story was that it was to invest in a Holiday Inn uh, run by her cousin, uh, Carlstead. But the truth of that matter is that the $10,000 was there to pay off a uh, a wire man named uh, Stevens. Uh, he ran a uh, company in uh, Chicago called Stevens Research, and he built uh, some of the wiretapping uh, devices that they used uh, in Watergate and, and elsewhere, because uh, Liddy was disappointed with the uh, quality of the uh, the White House or CIA provided uh, you know wiretapping and bugging devices. He said they were Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so uh, Stevens, uh, right after uh, the plane crash, got a call threatening his life and that he would end up like Dorothy if he didn't keep his mouth shut. But yes, uh, Michelle Clark, a CBS uh, anchorwoman, the first uh, African-American uh, CBS anchorwoman, I believe, uh, was on that flight, and she and my mother had arranged to uh, hold a press conference, at which time in Chicago my mother was going to blow the lid off the White House. And uh, they knew about that. Our phones were bugged. We were being followed all the time. And uh, my father made a threat uh, just days before she took off, saying the Watergate bugging is only one of a number of highly illegal conspiracies engaged in by one or more of the defendants at the behest of senior White House officials. These as yet undisclosed crimes can be proved. And James McCord later in his court statement said that Hunt had information which would impeach the president. Everything was at a boiling point. Uh, Nixon's uh, presidency was on the line. Hunt was unhappy. Uh, he wasn't being given clemency. The money was, was not coming as promised. And uh, my mother was in fear for her life. Uh, it was a very scary time. Um, and uh, she took off with the evidence and the money to Chicago to, to store in a safe location and then call the press conference, and that's why they had to bring down that plane, because there was no time left. They couldn't allow her to, to set up that press conference with Michelle Clark, and uh, and that's why someone took out the plane. Well, you also mentioned that uh, at, at, at the scene of the accident, the place was all of a sudden swarming with federal officials, FBI agents, and the like. Right. There was uh, within 40 minutes, and I know it's been said that within 20 minutes, but that's that's not true. My research has shown that within 40 minutes there was 50 FBI agents uh, at the crash scene. Now, that's a completely irregular, primarily because the FBI does not have jurisdiction to investigate a domestic crash scene. And um, they also went to the Midway Tower and confiscated the recording tape and uh, interviewed uh, witnesses on the ground, including uh, some of the ones that had made it through the crash alive. Uh, now, uh, the director of the NTSB, um, his name was uh, John Reed. He wrote a letter to William Ruckelshaus, who was acting FBI director at the time. And uh, Reed says in his letter, uh, quote, our investigation team discovered on the day of the accident that several FBI agents had taken a number of non-typical actions relating to this accident when, within the first few hours following the accident. For the first time in the memory of our staff, an FBI agent went to the control tower and confiscated the tape before our investigators had done so. 
He wanted to know why. He wanted to know what was going on. And he got a letter back from, um, from uh, Ruckel's house, uh, from the FBI, saying, uh, in fact, uh, this is a technicality, but Ruckel's house said the FBI does have primary jurisdiction in connection with the destruction of an aircraft, willful damaging, destroying, or disabling, pertaining to aircraft piracy, interference with flight crew members, assault, murder, manslaughter, and attempts to commit murder or manslaughter. Now, one thing that proves is that the FBI agents had prior knowledge that that flight was going to come down. They may have not known the exact location. Uh, they may have been involved. But no one in the history of the FBI at that point had 50 agents been able to amass themselves fully ready, locked and loaded, uh, and take over uh, a crash site like that. So they were standing by in different locations. The Chicago uh, branch of the FBI is 45 minutes from the crash site. They were all over that. And, of course, the very next day... Uh, December 9th, 72, Nixon appointed Eagle Crow uh, to Undersecretary of Transportation, which oversees the National Transportation and Safety Board, which is a solely appointed investigative body of, uh, of, air, of air crashes. And, of course, uh, a month or so later, he appointed Alexander Butterfield to administrator of the FAA, uh, which also had control over the investigation. Nixon was getting daily, you know, uh, memos and briefings, or weekly, whatever, whichever way they came uh, on the uh, path that the investigation was taking. And, of course, Krogh and Butterfield were in a position to control it, either uh, eliminate uh, uh, evidence or alter evidence. And um, Nixon was, uh, you know, he was all over that. So, you know, that, sh that showed me a lot already. But I found out a lot of other very, very bizarre circumstances and happenings uh, on, that, on that plane, which was piloted by one of... Uh, um, United Airlines' most rewarded uh, pilots, uh, Wendell Whitehouse. He had been a pilot thousands and thousands of hours. He was the most decorated pilot for United, and they blamed him. For more information, there is a lot of detail on this. We need to refer people uh, to your book titled Dorothy, The Murder of E. Howard Hunt's Wife, Watergate's Darkest Secret, uh, because this, this is certainly some pretty hair-raising stuff. All right, at this point, we should pause take a break and resume our conversation in the third segment. We will do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Don't go away. Don't go away. 